scripture lesson today, if you'll remain standing with me, comes from Paul's church uh, to the Roman outpost in Philippi. It's known as the letter to the Philippians. Let's share in God's good word together. There are many out there taking other paths, choosing other goals, and trying to get you to go along with them. I've warned you of them many times. Sadly, I'm having to do it again. All they want is easy street. They hate Christ's cross, but easy street is a dead-end street. Those who live there make their bellies their gods. Belches are their praise. All they can think of is their appetites. But there's far more to life for us. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, friends. Pastor Mark here. I'm going to put you in a little secret. This is my fridge with all my family and friends on it. But inside, inside there's a super cool drawer. It's my cheese drawer right there. Can you see that? And in the cheese drawer, oh my goodness, it's Gouda cheese. Gouda cheese. I'm going to get me a piece real quick. Okay, so here it is, my favorite kind of cheese. So I get one slice of Gouda cheese at night before I go to bed. But then I think to myself... If one is Gouda, two must be better. We're going to talk about that tonight. Any of y'all find yourselves at the fridge before you go to bed? One is Gouda, two must be better. That's what goes through my head. Uh, uh, first, first time I did that, my friend said, no, no, no. If one is Gouda, two must be feta. <laughs> now that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, welcome. I, my name is Pastor Mark, and I'm the founding pastor here, and we are in a series uh, that really is a matter of life and death. It really is. This stuff kind of seems light and funny, and it is in its own way if we can poke fun of ourselves, and we, and we ought to be able to do that. That's, that's good for our souls. But the thing is, whether you're talking about pride or humility, uh, or whether it's anger or patience, or whether that's lust or chastity or envy or contentment, or gluttony and temperance, left unchecked, these things are either going to lead you to life or lead to death. All you have to do is, I know I'm kind of morbid at times, because the last time I checked, the death rate's still 100%. And so I'm interested in, in how people exit this world. Um, and in America, most of it is self-inflicted. You look at many of the top things that we die from, it's simply because of excess and affluence. Uh, it's, it's not necessary, if you will. And so Christ has come to set you free to be able to say yes to the things that would be good for you and to be able to say no to the things that would harm you or others. That you actually have power now that you did not have before Christ came, before the Holy Spirit. And so today, if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. I want to remind you what's true about you. And that is that God has given you a will. God has given you a picker. You get to choose the kind of life that you have in many, many ways. You get to choose the desires that you will follow. You get choice about that. You can love God or you cannot love God. You can do the right thing or you cannot do the right thing. God allows you to make those choices. And the main choice that we make every day, all day, all our lives, is that we choose to please ourselves, my way, or we choose to please God and, and serve others as Christ did. And, and this is really the battle that wages between us all the time. And, and, and you know that. I mean, I'm not telling you anything new that, that isn't the reality of your life. And it's true for every single person. Every person that ever steps foot on this property is broken in some way, either public or private. And thank God for most of us, it's, it's fairly private. Um, 
But, you know, you never know when that's going to become public. It's just, that's just the book on us. So here's the thing that I really want you to know. Because so much uh, of Protestant theology in particular has come down to not doing anything wrong. And that's not life-giving at all. I mean, it's really not. That's moralism. And that's not what Christ came. Christ came to bring you life and bring it abundantly. To bring it to full. So here, here's the way I would say it. The Christian life is not not doing anything wrong. Will you say that with me? The Christian life is not not doing anything wrong. Nobody can do it. No one has. The Christian life is about walking with Jesus, and no one does that perfectly. Paul says this really clearly through all his writing. He says, look, the law itself is only going to bring death. He was the greatest of the Pharisees. He followed every law that he knew how to do, and he was the best at it, and he couldn't do it. Peter, the rock upon which Christ was going to build the church, and he has built the church, and even the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? He says, well, I'm Peter the rock, Petros. Uh, it's a play on words. And he hops out of the boat to follow Jesus, and what happens? He gets afraid, and he sinks. Now, if he's not going to do it well, we're probably not going to do it well either. But you are invited into a wonderful adventure with Christ that will include some wrong turns from time to time. And many of those wrong turns are simply a reminder that, oh, yes, we're not going to do this in our own strength anyway. We're going to do that with Christ. Um, as we prepare for sermons, we try to help each other as a, as a staff. And uh, I'm so grateful for Pastor Brandon. He shared with me this quote from Eric Metaxas. He says it like this, Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. That's what the Christian life's about. So th- think about that. And, and part of what we're doing here is that I'm, I'm inviting you to mature. I'm inviting you to grow up in the faith. Because what happens is when we teach Sunday school to four-year-old boys, much of our teaching is simply behavior control. Like, sit still, stay there, stay there, stay there, please stay there. The sermon's almost over, stay there. Right? And so we tell them stories like Noah, and God flooded the whole earth, and he'll do it again if you don't stay in your seat. Right? That, that sort of thing. Like, so you tell kids, like, do the right thing, because you're worried that they're going to escape, or whatever it is. But then you don't, you don't get to the real meat of the faith as you grow older and you go, wow, there's, there's a lot more to this faith. There's, there's, a, there's a bigness to life that a lot of the rules that we teach and we learn when we're young don't work when you're 50 and 60 anymore. That sometimes you do the right thing and the other guy gets the promotion. The wicked do prosper. And the good do get the shaft. It happens and you've got to figure that out and you've got to go to the book of Ecclesiastes and all the wisdom that's in the, in the church and in the Bible. So this is what I want you to know, because nobody's going to tell you this outside of church, probably. Or, or maybe a good um, therapist or a really, really good um, trainer. And that is this, that the struggle is good. Say that with me. The struggle is good. The struggle is good. Say it with me again. The struggle is good. Come on. The struggle is good. It's good, friends. It's important. It's what we're called to. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. That's not easy street. That's not a necklace. The struggle is good. It is good and right, and it matures us up. It grows us up. But nobody's going to tell you that. The world and the devil's voice, the tempter's going to say, no, 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 the struggle is bad. Are you kidding me? I know struggle. Struggle's terrible. I don't want to struggle. Any of you all go out and intentionally buy a car that's really hard to drive and doesn't work very well and doesn't start very often? No. You want a car that does everything for you, right? It warms your backside when it's cold. The whole thing. We want easy street. That's what the world tells us. But, but here's the thing. James, the brother of Jesus, he knows stuff. 
And he writes this down. He says, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, now he's recognizing that there are different folks out there, but he's talking to the Christian community, to us. And he says, when you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but what? Well, you're not going to have any joy if the struggle's bad. Right? The struggle's good. So when we have trials, we consider it joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be, say that word with me, mature. And you're no longer babies. No longer little milk, folks. Mature, complete, lacking nothing. So that the heavens come to earth through the people of God for all people. Struggle is good. But here's, here's the problem with struggle, and you know this well. When there is a struggle, we seek to do two things. The first is this, to numb the struggle. Isn't that true? You have a terrible day at work, or you have, you're, you're not feeling well, or whatever it is, and, and you just, you've had enough, you come home, and you think, wow, you know, if I could just have a drink, maybe I could go to sleep. Um, and, or I need a sleeping pill, or I'm just going to scroll on the internet when I get home. Am I the only one that scrolls on the internet when I get home? Perhaps. You know, because you don't really want to talk about your day because it was a terrible day. Or are you, you know, all the ladies playing Fortnite out there till we, you know, times in the morning. I know you're out there, somebody. I want to meet you, whoever that is. Um, but, you know, or, or books or, or some sort of escapism. We just want to numb the struggle because the world tells us the struggle is bad. We don't know how to get out of it. So we just, we're, well, we're just not going to pay attention to it. We're going to try to get some sleep and start over the next day. Isn't this where most of us live from time to time? We're just trying to get through. There's no joy there. There's no power there. There's no peace there. We're just numbing the struggle. And when that no longer works, we simply get rid of the relationship altogether. Where the struggle is coming from, we decide to exit it because we're tired of the struggle. And so, you know, here's the thing. If you are struggling in your marriage, that is good. That is so good. Because when you stop struggling, divorce is next. Isn't that true? When you give up, you get depressed, you get despondent, you give up hope. Okay. Or maybe you have a wayward child. You know, they're making the same decisions you made in college, but now it's bad for them. Right? And, and you want them to make different decisions because you know how painful those might be. And, and next thing you know, you don't call as often or they don't pick up the phone because they don't really want to talk to you about the things, the truth of them and the truth of your relationship. Or maybe it's your parents. You, you call them a little less often or you see them a less, little less often. Or maybe it's your job. You, you have a real struggle with your coworkers, or maybe you did get passed up for that promotion, and you think, no, no, no. And before you know it, you quit. You've had enough. You sever the relationship. And now you're still upset, but you're broke because you're not getting paid. But nothing's gotten any better. And if we're not careful, all of this, we'll do the same thing to God. We're tired of the struggle. So we stop praying, stop reading our Bible, we stop coming to church, stop being in a small group. We, we, we just, we're tired of the struggle. And we know that God's going to call us to the struggle, so we don't want to talk to him about it. Next thing you know, we're just, we're numbing ourselves. And the Bible and the Hebrew people call that death. It's a living death. You don't have to stop breathing to be dead. To be dead is not to have life and have it abundantly that Jesus came to give us. And it's available to you, but it will require our struggle. So here's the thing. Unrestrained pleasure destroys relationships. And think about that. Unrestrained pleasure destroys relationships in every way. Now, I could try to guess where, where you are in that, but I don't need to do that. You know that. But I do want to share a story with you that I think illustrates the point well. It's from one of my favorite authors, Brian Doyle. He says it like this. He says, it was the last night I was ever in college. He was about to graduate. 
He said there was a huge party in our hall, and it was a very old hall. It had ironwork, and everyone was there. It had vaulting ce- vaulted ceilings, and students that were not graduating were already gone. They had already left. So it was the very last night before graduation. There was shouting and laughter, chaos, merriment. It was awesome. And, of course, almost every student who was about to graduate, their parents were coming in, their brothers, their sisters, and a few dads even joined the party. And everyone tried to chat up the new girls, of course. And then people from the other halls who'd heard the party came over from their hall. And soon it was midnight and the party was thumping. It was great. And even the shyest people were dancing and giggling and shouting. It was a really great party. And about one in the morning, I noticed that the dad of a friend of mine was in the corner drinking hard and telling funny stories. And he got drunker and drunker until about 3 in the morning, he started shouting and cursing and some glasses smashed on the floor and he finally fell down himself. Now, as a college student, I'd never seen a dad huddled in a moist heap on their linoleum floor. It was a great shock. I'd never seen a drunken dad before. And at the party that night, my friend picked up his father and held him in his arms like a fireman would hold a child. And then he slid him grimly along the wall to the door. And when he got to the door, he held the door open with his foot and he pulled his dad outside. And I just stood there and watched him. I did nothing to help. I just stood there, frozen. Not the first time and not the last that I would stand silent and useless. Over the next 30 years, I never said, 30 years, I never said a word about that night. And neither did my friend. Here and there, he would leak a story about a moment when he was a kid and his dad was carried home by the police. Or about having to go and get his dad out of the drunk tank. Or about the morning his mom changed all the locks on the house. Or about how his sister went to live with their dad and came back the next day. Grim. Or about how one of the brothers in that family had died in a car crash. And the father did not make the funeral. He couldn't. Or about how when the dad died, they finally put his ashes in a whiskey bottle appropriately. But we never talked about that night at the party. Not once. All the rest of my life, I'll remember my friend's face as he carried his dad in his arms. That night. I'll never forget that. You think you have words for these sorts of things, but you don't. You don't. And all we can do is witness and report and hope, and somehow these stories would turn into prayers, real prayers, desperate prayers that we need help. And we do. Friends, while I'm telling this story, and while you're in this service, another person will be killed by a drunk driver in the next 48 minutes. Every 48 minutes. Completely, 100% preventable, but it happens in our country every day, every 48 minutes. In 2017, 10,874 people were killed by drunk driving. That's all choice. It's all choice. And we allow it. We participate in it. Sometimes we encourage it. I mean, this is life and death. It really is. So Paul says, this is not new, though. This, this struggle around this, not new. In Galatians 5, he writes to the people in Galatians. He says, no, no, no. For you, you were called to freedom. Real freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for, say it with me, self-indulgence. No, you are free now. You really are. You have choice. You have a picker. You have a will. He says, but through love become slaves to one another. And he chooses that word slave on purpose. And I would remind you at that time in our world, the Galatians had slaves. 
They knew what that was. And he said, look, if you're going to have freedom in Christ, you choose to be like a slave. You be a slave to those around you. You do what's best for them. That's what it is to live for Christ, doing the best for others. It says, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. Read it with me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for flesh and spirit are opposed, he says. This is a real struggle. Now, in, in order to make the point clear, he says, these are the works of the flesh. And they list them out. Fornication, purity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Now, I want you to take a look at this list with me very, very closely. Every single one of these things breaks relationship. Isn't that true? That's why they're on the list. It's not about themselves. It's that when you sleep with somebody that's not your wife, you sleep with somebody else's girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, whatever it is, that relationship's about over. That's why fornication's on the list. Of course, the other ones are easier. If, you're, if you have enmity, obviously that's breaking. Strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Have you ever been at a party and you're the only sober person? Not fun. I'm, it's not. It's not. But the reason those are their friends is because they break relationship. And then Paul says this. He says, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is in relationship. Even Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in community, in relationship. So if you're about those things, your relationships are going to be broken. And heaven, by the way, is not about future. It's about now. It's about now. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not the kingdom of God will happen after you're dead. It's now. And so he says, I'm warning you, if you do these things, your relationships will break apart and you will have hell on earth. He says, so by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit are these. Same with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things, think about them. They're bringing that brokenness back together. Right? In your relationship, if you're a person of love, you're bringing healing into that relationship. If you're patient with those um, who are not being kind, if you're being kind to those who are being hateful, if you're being generous with those who are in need, isn't that drawing your relationship together? This is all God's saying to you. Look, you live like this, your relationships will be broken apart. That's not of me. You live like this, it'll bring them back together. And I, I want to say, I, did, I haven't said this in any of the other services. This is just for you. There is a chance that when you get to heaven there'll be a whole bunch of people you don't like there. And you're going to have to figure it out because you can't leave it and it never ends. So you might want to start working on it now. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. It's not just talk. And then he says this, so let's not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Why? Because that breaks relationship, Right? So Father Joseph Honeycutt says it like this. He says, when there is no struggle, the battle is already lost. Right? Because you've given up. You're despondent. And when we do not struggle, we become depressed. We lose hope. So the struggle is good. Right? The struggle is good. And we struggle not alone, but as a family. We struggle as a, say it with me, family. Aided by the Holy Spirit, not as individuals. And this is the great tragedy of the Protestant um, reformation and the protestant revivalist movement we have this odd idea that somehow the great christians at 6 a.m or earlier before dawn have their bible and their coffee at their table by themselves 
And that's what a good Christian does. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus had 12 people around him all the time. And he could have modeled whatever he wanted to model. And he modeled community. He modeled being in real relationship with everyone he was around. He was not alone. Now, granted, he would go out to pray and then he would come back. He would go to the temple. He would also teach. He would also be with all the kinds of people that nobody else wanted to be with. But friends, our faith is a relationship faith. And everything in the Bible is about being in relationship with God and with others. The great commandment, right? Love God, love neighbor. And that's the beauty and the power of the 12-step groups. In AA, they say this, you're only as sick as your secrets. Isn't that true? You're only as sick as your secrets. And then in the Gospel of John, he says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Nobody gets better, nobody gets healed until you get to the truth. You have to start there. But that truth is hard because when we are vulnerable is when we are, if you've been to a 12-step group, you'll know these, or you may just know them anyway. Say them with me if you know them. When you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, right? And, and some of you have, have known when your spouse gets hangry, well, you better watch it, right? You got to be nice after this service before you get to lunch or it's dicey, right? Or sometimes, have you ever been on the car on the way home from a long vacation and you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired? Woo! Well, you better just listen to some music, numb that out, Right? Because you're in for some pain. So I'm going to ask you a question that, that, that could change your life if you pay attention to it. It's really super important, so I want you to think about it. Don't, don't tell anybody unless you can absolutely trust them. But here's the question for you. Where do you go when you're hurting? I mean, really. When your feelings are hurt, when you've been done wrong, when you've been betrayed, when, when you are having the worst day of your life, and there's nobody else at home or nobody else around you, what do you do? What do you do? Because that's your character. And that's your God. Whatever you run to, that's your Savior. Whatever you run to when you're hurting, that's your Savior. And if it's not Jesus, then just know that you're replacing an idol in front of Jesus in that moment. And we are taught to do this since we're little bitty. I'm not beating up on us. We just need to own this, that this is the truth on us. And we try to clean it up or we try to make it funny. And I, I came across this week. I love this. It says, today I will live in the moment. Unless the moment's unpleasant, in which case I'll eat a cookie. Right? I mean, we want to numb that stuff. We, we, want, we want to numb it. We don't want to think about it. And the problem is that the foundation of our problems is repeated habit. So when you were three, four, five, six years of age, you were tiny and you had your feelings hurt. Uh, I, I can remember when um, my cousin, we would play football and he would throw me in my grandmother's rose bushes. He would trip me, and, and I would, I mean, come out, all, I mean, it was terrible. Now, I love him, but, I mean, it was terrible. And, and I would come in, and my grandmother would be like, oh, poor Marco. Oh, you want a Dunkin' Donut? And I felt better. I had a Dunkin' Donut this morning. Right? 43 years later, whatever it is. 40, whatever. I'm older than that, but anyway. Uh, so, see what happens? For some of you, food was what soothed you when you were hurting. For others, right? I, I can remember uh, another time. Um, my sister was having a really bad time. And uh, my grandmother says, let's go shopping. And I know ladies. So, so here's the thing. When you, when you get your feelings hurt, when you're having a bad day, just go to the mall. It works. I mean, it's great. Just go to the mall. I, I know ladies in their 80s still going to the mall. And, and they're struggling to make their house payment. 
right? Because every time something bad happened, they, they just needed to spend some money. And then it stopped working for them at some point. Or, or maybe you come from a family that, you know, when, when you got a promotion or you, that you had a great day, you know, you went back and you had a beer out in the backyard. With, that's what you saw your dad do. Or maybe you had a terrible day and, and you switched out the beer, uh, you know, for scotch. Uh, and, and if you had a good day and a bad day, you had scotch and a cigar. And, and that's sort of the thing that you did. And then when you were 18 or you were 21 or whenever, you know, your family system said that you were a man or you were able to do it, then you get to go in the backyard and you get to have your whiskey and your cigar with dad and grandpa. And that's what you do when you celebrate or that's what you do when you're sad because that's what you do and that's what you've been trained to do. And you will do it. You won't even think about it. Whatever it is that you learned, 3, 4, 5, 6, 18, 21, you'll do that unless you replace it with the power of God, which now is your choice, which you did not have before Jesus, but you have it now. Make sense? You have a choice. You have a will. You have a picker. So gluttony, then, is the reckless desire for things that stimulate the senses. Talking too much fits in that category. Listening to gossip, drinking too much, overeating, scrolling, listening to music, or talk radio too much. Right? Have you ever been on vacation with your teenagers? And I've done this, and I've said, hey, you know, so-and-so, and you're doing blah, blah, blah. And I get like 30 seconds in, I realize they've got their headphones in. They haven't heard any of that. They are completely checked out in their music. Or, right, if you're the dad and you've had enough of the family time, so you turn on the talk radio real loud because you, you cannot take another moment of the talking of the family. Or you've got to watch the news because it's really important. It could save your life. Right? Don't bother me. I, see, gluttony is not about the food unless it is about the food, but it may not be about overeating. It may be about something else. I came across this movie when I was in college, and I loved it then. Uh, I hope you love it as well. It looks like this. What can I get you? I'll have a number three. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You see, gluttony manifests itself as fussiness, as being critical or demanding, hard to please. Uh, Father Honeycutt actually said fastidiousness. I had to look it up. And that's that's what it is. See, it's it's not necessarily about giving yourself over to the food. It's about power and control. This is how I will have my food prepared. Not like that, like this. So it doesn't matter whether it's a lot of food or not eating any food, being demanding about yourself or somebody else's food. doesn't matter. It's all the same problem. In her book, Seven, An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess, Jen Hatmaker writes, What used to be comfortable for me was being a big, fat consumer Christian. But then that became uncomfortable when, when they made the, <laughs> the wonderful discovery of hosting 12 evacuees from Hurricane Ike in their 2,400-square-foot home. Now, th- this happened when a 10-year-old boy walked in through their front door with everything he owned in a trash bag. And, she, and he looked at what she thought was a modest suburban home. And with huge eyes, he hollered, Dad, the white dude is rich. And Jen writes, we are. And for so many years, I didn't realize it. Because so many others around us had so much more. We were surrounded by extreme affluence, which tricks you into thinking that you're really middle of the pack. When the hatmakers widen their circle to include people beyond their zip code, they realize that we've never missed a meal. Have you? I even skimped on one, she writes. We have two cars under warranty, 
We've never gone a day without health insurance. Our closets are overflowing. We throw away food we didn't eat. Clothes we barely wore. I was so blinded, I didn't even know we were rich. And then she writes this. We are the richest people on earth praying to get richer. We have too much, and it is ruining us. Ruining us. And so the answer that Christ has for us is temperance, which is trusting that Christ is enough. It really is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. All this other stuff is fine, but not before God. God is God. The other things are for his good use through us. So temperance, then, is the gift of limit. I want you to say that out loud with me. Temperance is the gift of limit. It's a gift. It brings you life. It keeps you out of trouble. It protects you and blesses you. Because what Jesus says is enough is enough. It really is. It's enough. You don't have to worry. See the lilies of the field, how they grow. See the birds of the air. It's enough. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water at the well will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. And you you think about that. What would it be like for you never to be harassed by the things of the world again? That you would just be at peace at whatever happens in your day from now on. From this day forward, whatever Christ does and brings into your life is enough. Imagine the power of that. The glory of that. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman says to him, well, give me that water. Right? Now, I don't want to have to come to the well all the time. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband, come back. The woman answers him, well, I have no husband, which is true-ish. It's kind of true. And Jesus gets to the truth. He drills down and he says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true now that they're at true now the change comes and she's about to say you are the messiah i found the messiah it changes her whole community all the folks in samaria it it starts to turn the world around because they got to the truth you see temperance is moderation in all things including work including family including everything in your life so if you're working for the man and you've not been home uh, for dinner the last three nights and you think, no, i got to get at this, i got to stay at this, you know, I'm going to get this through, I'm going to get that promotion, get your butt home. I mean, just get home. Your family needs you. I mean, really, get home. And, and if you're the person at the table that says, no, no, our family vacation isn't going to be right, it's not going to be perfect unless every person that I'm related to in my complete family tree is there, get over it. I mean, really, just get over it. For Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for... I mean, because here's the thing. Does Christ call you to other control? No. He calls you to self-control. You can only control what you can do. So be happy in the moment. Be happy with what you have. Be happy with what you make. Be happy with the family that you have. It's important, friends. It'll give you life and freedom. Or you can just stay mad at the world all the time because you're not getting your way. Because Aunt Sally, four states away, didn't show up on time. You can choose that, but it's miserable for everyone. Right? For everyone. So the virtue that we're trying to get to doesn't happen on its own. It's encouraged, aided, and developed by way of, say it with me, fasting. Now you're like, why did I come to church? Like, really? Fasting? Oh, I thought we were past that. Look, if you want to know the truth about your spirit, don't eat for three days. You'll be amazed at what's still in you that needs some help. 
true for all of us. Fasting is the cure for spiritual blindness. It really is. And the thing is, if it's not food, don't worry about it. Don't fast from food. What, what, what you need to fast from is whatever hurts your relationship with God and others. My, my hunch is that for about half of us, uh, we need to fast from our phones when we hit the door of our house. We need to just check them so we can actually talk to our kids and our wives and our husbands and our parents. Probably. Am I guessing, right? Am I even close to that? That's probably a better thing for most of you than ding-dongs. That's mine. So, here's the thing. It's not about the food. The greatest struggle is, say it with me, obedience. And whatever that is, wherever that is for you. So, Paul writes in Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained this or have reached the goal. He says, no, I struggle too. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do. I'm going to forget what's behind me. I'm going to strain for what's ahead. I'm going to press on to the goal. You see the struggle? He's in the struggle. And the struggle is, oh, come on. It's good. It's good, friends. It's good. Let those of us then who are mature, there's that word again, right? Not babies. Mature, be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Don't worry about it. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about people outside of Philippi at this point. I've often told you them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly and their their appetites. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And then you get to this. Read it with me. But our citizenship, you're and mine, the, the, the Christians in Philippi, our citizenship is in heaven. And it's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would remind you that Philippi is right here. And it is an outpost of Rome. So almost everybody Paul's writing to is a Roman citizen. So he's like, look, you don't, you don't have to live like they live. You're a citizen of Rome. But not just that. You're actually a citizen of heaven. And so are you. You don't have to live like Edmund lives. You don't belong here. You're an eternal being fit for heaven to live with Christ forever and ever and ever. Now I'm going to close up with this metaphor because it's powerful to me and I hope it'll be powerful to you. I want you to think about your life and what you're doing with your life and, and what you set your mind on and whether you're a slave. By the way, in the metaphor, you're the bird. We're the birds. We're all birds. Let's take a look. The Lee is one of the cleanest rivers in China, a favorite spot for fishermen with their trained cormorants. Before they release the birds, they tie a noose loosely around the neck to stop them swallowing any fish they may catch. Chanting and dancing, the Huangs encourage their birds to take the plunge. Underwater, the cormorant's hunting instinct kicks in, turning them into fish-seeking missiles. Working together, a good cormorant team can catch a couple of dozen decent-sized fish in a morning. From the time it first hatched, each of these cormorants has been reared to a life of obedience to its master. The birds are, in effect, slaves. The fishermen, of course, keep the best fish for themselves. The cormorants get the leftover tiddlers. With its collar removed, the bird can at last swallow its prize. From the first day you were born, you have been trained to be a slave 
to be a consumer. To want more than is good for you and to try to choke it down, which you cannot do because the man has his hand around your neck. And all the things that you think you want and you're trying to get, you cannot get it down. It's rigged against us, friends. Christ knows this. So, so he says, if you want to get past this, you want freedom, right? If you want joy, if you, want to, if you don't want to live like that, if you don't want to be slave to the man anymore, all you have to do is eat the little fish. It's enough. You think about the birds. All they had to do is eat the little fish, and they're useless. They do nothing. They're free. But they have to make the choice, I'm going to see a huge fish, and I'm going to let it go by. I'm going to eat a little fish, and it'll be enough for me, and I'll be free. How about you? Are you getting this? Christ says, get that thing off your neck. Be free, because you're not made to be bottom dwellers. You are not made for this world. You are made to fly. You are made for freedom. You are made to be set free, but you will never get there. If you yield to the man of consumerism. Because you can't choke it down. We're not made for that. We're made for this. We are. Now, it won't be easy to get there. Because you, you got the whole world working against you on this deal. But Christ is greater. Christ is stronger. Christ is better. So here's a way to get at this. Um, this, will, this will open your eyes. I want to invite you this week. Go down, open a bank account. Go grocery shopping. Or do some other business south of 10th Street in Oklahoma City. Before you get to Moore or Norman. You know, in the poor parts of our town. In Oklahoma City. I mean, really. I mean, think about the way most of us shop in Edmond. You do know we're in a bubble, right? A serious bubble. Last time I went shopping, I thought I was a king. I said, queen, order me these things. And she said, done, sire. That's how I understood it. I don't think that's what she said, but that's how I heard it. And she typed some stuff on her phone, and we got in our chariot. We drove our chariot to Walmart, and I rolled the window down, and they came up with all our stuff. They knew we were there, and we said, all the substitutions are approved. Put it in the back, and they put it in our trunk, and we drove home. Convenient. Never exited the vehicle. Come on, you know that's a good deal at Walmart. That is awesome. Do I know anything about those people? Am I in relationship with my community when I do that? No. If you want to be in a relationship, you've got to get out of your car. If you want to know how people really live, that two-thirds of the world live on less than $2 a day, you might have to get out of the country. Right? And let the Lord say to you whatever the Lord wants to say to you that we might care for our fellow human beings all around the world. Or, if you really do want to look at our bodies, uh, that's easy enough. Right now, say you're just going to drink water from right now till Wednesday. Just water. And what many of us will find out is you're going to have a headache by noon tomorrow because you are caffeine addicted. You mix your extra half-calf tall latte macchiato thingy, whatever. I don't drink that stuff. But anyway, if you do, you're going to have a bad headache. It's Mountain Dew for me, right? So, but it's going to hurt. And I'm not trying to hurt you. I mean, take an aspirin. It's okay. But find out. I mean, like, oh, wow, what I put in my body changes my mind, changes my spirit, changes my life. I might want to look at that. You just find out. It doesn't come quickly, but it is possible. Because Christ came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Life that's worth living. 
not living death, but life itself, now and always. Amen? Amen. Let's get started. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are enough, and that what you say is enough is enough. We trust you with it, and we ask that you would draw us again to your cross, your sacrifice, your life, the way you lived for others. Let us live like you lived for the very transformation of the world. And when we don't know how to pray, we thank you for teaching us even that by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.